transparent icon of the faith, somebody whose life witnesses to the goodness of God, to the story of the gospel in some way or another. And each week we have them here in the front um, with a picture and a quote from them, and then after that week you'll notice we're moving them back around us. So by the end of this series, we're going to be surrounded by the icons of the faith. Over here we have Julian of Norwich, who we might remember said, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And over on this side, you might see Harriet Tubman, who says, Lord, I trust you. I expect you to lead me. And now today we come to Sadhu Sundar Singh, whose quote says, you alone do I desire, and where you are, there is heaven. We have the privilege to meet him today. He may be a new character from the faith for you as he was for me not too long ago. I think there's something inspiring and profound in his story and the way he witnesses the gospel. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. What does a Christian look like? Now, a Christian can look like anything, of course. We all know this on some level, intellectually, even if we cannot help developing assumptions about people we meet for the first time, and we are at least occasionally surprised to find that someone who didn't look like a Christian is, in fact, a Christian. Because it's difficult to escape this idea that there is some sort of standard definition about what a normal Christian looks like, even if it doesn't match up with who we are ourselves exactly. Is it helpful to have some sort of monolithic depiction of the Christian ideal for us all to measure ourselves against? What does a Christian look like? The icon of focus today, Sadhu Sundar Singh, doesn't look like a Christian, or at least he didn't for many of his time. He was a missionary from India, and he became famous in Christian circles and traveled across the globe as a speaker between about 1918 and 1923 when he was just in his early 20s. He stood just over six feet tall and he carried himself with poise, taking full advantage of his whole height. And he had a full beard and dark eyes, and he dressed in a traditional orange robe. Once on a visit to England, He rang the doorbell at a house, and when the maid saw who was at the door, she rushed to the lady of the house and said with terror, Madam, I think Christ has come, causing a child who overheard her to seek cover under a bed. He looked eerily like Jesus, and yet wildly unlike what the world thought of as the typical Christian, which lent him some intrigue and interest. Now, his eventual Christian faith was not a given, Sundar Singh was born in 1889 as the youngest child in an aristocratic family in the Rampur village in northern India. He was raised in the Sikh religion, primarily by his mother, who encouraged him to become a holy man. And it is said that by the age of seven, Sundar Singh knew the entire Bhagavad Gita by heart. When he was 14, his mother and older brother died, and Sundar Singh's father thought that he was much too devoutly religious for his age. Once Sundar's guru told his father, your son will either become a fool or a great man. Sundar Singh was exposed to Christianity most directly during a year when he attended the local school run by the American Presbyterian missionaries. 
but he resented the religious teachings of the New Testament. A year after his mother's death and amid an ongoing crisis of faith that he could not imagine bearing any longer, Sundar planned to end his life to find God on the other side of death. But early that morning, after a cold bath and a desperate prayer that God be revealed to him, Sundar Singh had a vision of Christ. Christ, radiant with love and who spoke to him in perfect Hindustani, a local dialect of Hindi, and Sundar Singh's native language. Sundar was never the same again. He felt from that day on a deep and abiding peace. He considered himself a new person, and he was baptized as soon as he could. While his father would come eventually to embrace the Christian faith much later in his own life, his father was initially very opposed to Sundar's conversion and drove him out of the house. And so Sundar gave up his possessions and put on the saffron orange robe to become a sadhu, which was a holy man. He began traveling the region to share and speak about Christ. He went without money, eating only the food he was offered, and carried with him only a blanket that he wore around his head as a turban. This all made sense to the now sadhu Sundar Singh, but conflicted with the evangelist the evangelistic style of the Presbyterian mission community of the area. They resisted any sort of blending of Christianity with the local culture, as Sundar was doing, acting like a holy man of any other number of faiths, but giving the story of Christianity. This same conflict followed Sundar when he did attend the Anglican Missionary College in Punjab, a local area, for eight months He left after he was told that he had to abandon his sadhu's robe, that orange saffron robe, for respectable European clerical attire. He had to use Anglican worship. He could sing only English hymns, and he could only preach outside of his parish without permission. And Susandu left that school and remained convinced throughout his entire life that the Christian faith he had come to know and the Indian religious culture he had been raised in had much more in common than the foreign missionary's narrow definition of a Christian seemed to allow. I imagine that Sundar Singh never forgot that Jesus spoke to him in Hindustani. The struggle between Christian faith and local culture, as Sundar experienced, is the same as we find Paul addressing in today's passage from his first letter to the Corinthians. This first letter is sent, it's uh, said early on, because the church in Corinth was divided in allegiance between the various apostles who had introduced them to the faith, Paul being one of them. And so Paul is writing to defend himself and, by association, the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. For while they were splitting between various affiliations, whether they were disciples of Paul or Apollo or Christ or another, Paul felt strongly that he needed to reassert himself and the gospel that he proclaimed, which was one of unity and love. And here in this passage in 1 Corinthians, he's pushing back against what seems to be accusations that he is some sort of apostolic chameleon, that he acts differently with different groups of people, with the potential implication that he might be representing himself dishonestly in order to gain the support, the financial support, of as many groups as possible. 
And so Paul begins his defense of himself by describing his obligation to preach the gospel. This calling to share the good news of God's love and salvation through Christ is certainly not unique to Paul. We are all called to be witnesses to the good news as we have experienced, and, and yet it seems to be an especially vital part of Paul's purpose in life. I'm in trouble if I don't preach the gospel, he says to them. And his preaching isn't to get any reward, financial or otherwise, as the Corinthians are implying, but simply because he has to preach. He can do nothing but preach. And because preaching is his sole purpose in life, he's using every resource he has available to him in order to reach as many people's ears as possible. And that means meeting people on either side of the predominant religious and cultural divide of the time which had the Jews on one side and the Gentiles on the other. Or as Paul also describes it, those under the law and those outside of the law. And Paul says he acts like both. He acts like a Jew to the Jews and he acts like he's outside of the law to those outside of the law. And that he would, in fact, become all things to all people, if necessary and helpful, for preaching the gospel. It's almost concerning to hear how far he would go to meet people with the gospel. And many have wished that Paul would have reined in his argument just a bit. He would have toned down the rhetoric at least a smidge. Because after all, is what he's saying not that anything goes? This is the familiar argument that is made any time we fear that we might be dropping a biblical law or mandate. If we let go of any part of the law, aren't we just inviting lawlessness? But this isn't the case for Paul, who at no point encourages theological relativity of any sort. Instead, he deals with the law in a rather particular way, in a rather roundabout way, as we heard, as he uses the word law over and over again. See, rather than considering himself under the thumb of individual mandates, of rules and regulations, Paul sees himself as under the law of Christ, which he sees as a rule of love adaptable to every situation. Now, notably, this is also how the Hebrew law can function. It's in Hosea, way back in the Old Testament, that God asked for love instead of sacrifices and mercy instead of burned offerings. Because the law in every age is a conduit for the relationship with God, not something to be confused for the relationship itself. And yet, we have a tendency to codify things into rules and regulations and then fret about how we might be dropping any of them. But Paul is adamant here. He's not giving up any particularity of the faith. He's not losing anything of eternal value by adapting and preaching within a culture. He's simply giving up his own particularity, his own preferences and identity. And in return, he's gaining the salvation of many who otherwise would not have been able to hear the gospel over the cultural divide. History has proved this to be so time and time again, as evangelism has so often been inextricably linked with colonialism. As Christianity became the normative religious expression of Western society, it became indistinguishable from Western culture, and so missionaries spread both at once. Converts to the faith gained something, but may have lost something of value as well. Desmond Tutu described this once, saying, we had the land, and they had the Bible. Then they said, let us pray, and we closed our eyes. When we opened them again, they had the land, 
and we had the Bible. Maybe we got the better end of the deal. Perhaps, but maybe only barely. And this was the case often, that missionaries, unintentionally or not, would bring with them a society that did not respect the indigenous people, a society that thought those people's culture was less than or primitive since Western culture was synonymous with the Christian faith. And so in this worldview, they would often leave the native people mistreated and even oppressed because their culture was inferior to the Western culture. And this is what Sadhu Sundar Singh experienced with the missionaries in his country and why he adopted the practice that Paul once defended to the Corinthians. In hundreds of the villages where he preached, the connections he allowed between local religious traditions and Christ made all the difference. In one instance, there were nine Hindu listeners who presented themselves for baptism, telling Sundar, we knew all about Christ for the last 20 years from the European missionaries. But now, we understand truly that he is the only Savior. It was Sundar's willingness to connect Christ and the gospel with the culture that people were in that gave his message a chance to be heard, that gave the gospel a chance to be heard. Now, like Paul, this didn't mean that anything went. Sundar remained true to the gospel and critiqued culture as necessary, his own and the Western culture he came to experience. For no culture is perfect, and no culture is synonymous with the gospel. After having toured through Europe speaking about Christ, he shared a story once and said, While sitting on the bank of a river one day, I picked up a solid round stone from the water, and I broke it open. It was perfectly dry, although it had been immersed in water for centuries. The same is true of many in the Western world. For centuries they have been surrounded by Christianity. They live immersed in the waters of its benefits, and yet it has not penetrated their hearts. They do not love it. The fault is not in Christianity, but in men's hearts, which have been hardened by materialism and intellectualism. He knew and was describing the trouble that comes when we cannot recognize where culture ends and Christ begins. For doing so allows us to see the distinction between Christ and everything else. And this ties back into what was Sundar's true and primary message. For like Paul and all of us, he was called to preach the gospel. And throughout his tours abroad and within his own country of India, his message was disarmingly simple and focused only on one thing, knowing the person of God, sitting at the feet of the divine master. Let everything else go, he taught, to find and focus on God alone. For God is not of any particular culture or of any particular people or of any particular place. God speaks the language of every people, meets us all where we are, and helps us become not a stereotype, but fully ourselves as we were created to be. The message and the gospel as Sundar proclaimed it was to let everything else go, to let go of all things that were not the presence of God in God's own self, to strip all else away, to seek God only. And perhaps this is what Christians look like. 
a great diversity of people from every culture and every place sitting at the feet of God, learning from one another about how best to embody that flexible law of Christ, the gospel of love, in the place and the culture and the society from which we come. For we don't have to be of any particular nation, of any particular political persuasion, of any particular opinion or mind or practice in order to be people who call ourselves Christian. For Christians are of every sort and every place, are those who find God wherever God is. And it might be that God is all over the place. And as Sundar says, you alone do I desire, and where you are, there is heaven. Heaven might be all over the place. If we find that ability to strip away all else and seek God alone. May we do so. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing together.